I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. We struggled to raise capital for the first four years. I mean, we weren't profitable. We were buying the product off Amazon and selling it. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Grove Collaborative founder and CEO Stu Lannisberg will walk us through the history of Grove Collaborative, from humble hits and misses to an enviably successful business today. Grove creates and curates more than 150 sustainable household products that are healthy, ethically produced, and cruelty-free. And Stu believes you should never have to choose between a clean home and a clean planet. But as all founders learn, no matter what knowledge you bring to the table, you're in for a bumpy ride. The digital route is is much harder. And what's really required to win now is a bigger basket, fuller regimen. You know, there's a bunch of rules that didn't apply when we when we got started. Find out how Stu doubled down on customer behavior to build a product people actually want. How he convinced investors that sustainability is worth the risk and where Grove Collaborative sees itself evolving over the next decade. Unfinished Biz starts now. Well, Wayne, Stu really does live a life of sustainability. I mean, his, his family has been really focused on such an important concept for a really, really long time. Um, they live their life with that sort of in mind. But I think Stu's really the first in his family to have actually turned this ethos into a business. No, I think it's a great point you're making, Robin. I mean, he left a a very stable gig in finance with an upward trajectory and gave that all up to bootstrap a business to pursue this life's mission of sustainable products. But you know why we we had him on the show was not only that is it's a very unique journey from a bootstrap business for years and then suddenly it almost like clicked into a vc darling to despacking it into a public company like i don't know of another consumer products oriented business with this profile so we're really excited to have Stu, and you're going to hear it hear it for yourself here we go my entrepreneurial journey started when I was probably five or 10 years old. And I grew up in a household that always cared a lot about sustainability. And, you know, paint you a picture of six year old Stu's house and sort of like typical suburban white picket fence, whatever, middle class family. We had one skew from Ford in the driveway, you know, one skew from Coca Cola in the fridge. But you open the door to my basement and there's this wall of seventh generation products, seventh generations. One of the earliest sustainable home and personal home care. Companies. When you were six years old? Yeah, totally. This is just like my life growing up. You know, you open the door to, I guess it was like a, it was like a rack filled yeah. with, with cleaning products. And I was like, that's the biggest company in the world. And it's good for the environment. Someday I'm going to be the CEO of that company. And so fast forward, you know, 20 years later, started my career in investing, worked mostly in and around a big firm called TPG Capital, covered consumer, retail, and internet. Saw firsthand that what's on the grocery store shelf, a lot of that's controlled by distribution, not by customer preference, like true consumer preference. And so there was an opportunity to build a business if you can connect directly with consumers in bringing them products that are more sustainable than what's flowing through distribution 
to the grocery store shelf. And so I did not get to be the CEO of Seventh Generation, but we partner closely with them now and, and have built a business you know, very much inspired by them and other leaders who believe that sustainability and customer experience can really go hand in hand. Um, so anyway, so I got the, the, the credit belongs to my parents uh, for the big idea and the belief that sustainability can be an idea that scales. Where did you find that, that seventh generation and others weren't hitting the mark? So this is this is like the core thing. I remember believing, thinking early on, like, why aren't people using these products? They're better for them. They're better for the environment. And the price parity between natural and conventional, if you buy them in the same channel, is actually it's pretty close. Like if you buy a Grove soap versus a, you know higher quality branded soap from a big conventional brand, they'll be pretty close in price per use. And the reason is basically that the the natural brands lack distribution. And so if you look method, seventh generation, a lot of these you know, brands that were breakthrough, they're 30, 40, 50 years old in some cases, because it takes a really long time to get distribution. We shortcut that by going directly to the consumers online. And so we built you know, a business, millions of consumers, hundreds of millions of revenue by going directly to the consumer. And so the core insight was we can build the best product in the industry, but if the consumer doesn't know it's there, who cares? And so we were able to leverage digital to get the message out and meet our consumers more directly than had ever happened in the category. And as a result, we were able to grow much more quickly than anyone in the category has ever grown. So how did you start? So you, you, what, what year was this? When did you decide to leave TPG and how did you get it going? So I decided to start in 2012, I was 27 years old. And I'm not sure if you've ever met a 27 year old who's just gotten a couple of good reviews uh, at a finance firm. This 27-year-old Stu really thought he knew everything. Boy, all the hubris in the world, uh, much of which I've been disavowed the hard way in the last decade. Uh, but I started the company very simply, not technical, um, but I had a belief that we could build a digital product that would help people create a healthy regimen for their household. And so I built a prototype in Microsoft PowerPoint. And I built sort of the back-end logic in Microsoft Excel. And I would go to Starbucks around San Francisco, give people $5, or sometimes I'd have to do $10 gift cards if it was a tough crowd, to sit down and click through a like prototype that I built in PowerPoint. Like You can link slides together. It could click a little bit like a web browser. And I would watch what people did, plug their results into sort of like my Excel curation machine, show them the Excel output, be like, hey, these are the products that you get. And that was how we got going. And so it was like a year of that. For the first four or five years were incredibly slow. So we did that. And then we finally launched a website. And initially we were like shipping products in the basement of our co-working space. Like you know, first year we probably did a thousand shipments. But me and my co-founders, every day, four o'clock, we'd go down to the basement, we'd pack up the boxes ourselves, take them to the UPS store down the street and ship them out. And eventually we had you know, a 1,000 square foot storage unit in the dog pack that was our like warehouse. And you know. 10 warehouses later, now we have you know, three multi-hundred thousand square foot fulfillment centers across the country with you know, real professionals. But the first four years, I mean, it was like storage units and crazy shit in retrospect. I'm still fascinated. So were you basically doing like in-person A-B testing on Excel? You were like this product or this product, and then that would actually then... Kind of channel yeah, so it was even even more lo-fi than that. So I built a PowerPoint prototype and I would go in and I would ask some nice person, 
hey, would you, here's a $5 gift card, would you walk through this to me? And inevitably they would get stuck or they would have a question. And I would walk them through it and they'd get through the prototype and then I'd show them their result and they'd say, oh, this is cool, but like, I don't really want it. Or sometimes they'd actually want it. I remember the first time somebody wanted it, I was like, great, just email me your credit card. And I emailed <laughs> it around to all of our investors. I was like, look at this email with all of our credit card details. Um, <laughs> anyway, but so in between user tasks, I would like get the feedback and then I would sit by myself for 20 minutes and I would like make the changes in Microsoft PowerPoint. And then I would test another person and be like, hey, does this, you know, will you walk through this? And if they got through that step really cleanly, I would know we were good and we were making progress. And that took about a year um, to get to a point where we had something that was consistently getting people to a place where they're like, this is interesting. This is rational. I mean, people weren't super excited about it, but it was good enough that we could we could start to get traction. What were the core takeaways after a year that you found found to be consistent? I think the consistent thing is that people genuinely cared about this category. I went into this business with a hypothesis that it would be sort of like a set it and forget it. That hypothesis is completely wrong. And so our core value proposition, what I, which I initially assumed would be convenience, is actually not convenience at all. It's innovation, it's sustainability, it's efficacy, it's fragrance, it's beautiful design, it's price, it's customer service, it's community. It's all of these things that encompass a brand that makes you want to, that's lovable, right? And so I believe we would be a convenience company, but through those customer communications, it became clear that we were going to be a brand that really stood for something. And I mean, thank God we figured that out because there's not a business to build here in convenience. Amazon kind of already won that, right? And if we Amazon hadn't won it, Instacart would have won it. But there's a real business in how do you create the most sustainable brand ever in this category, solve the plastic problem, which is trillion-dollar problem across consumer packaged goods, and also deliver a product that works as well or better than conventionals at a comparable price point with an awesome customer experience. If you can do that and do it in a really high-integrity way, consumers want to be a part of that brand. They want to be a part of that movement. And that, that changed how we thought about our North Star you know, back in 2013, 2014. And you, know, you all know better than most, right? It's, it's amazing how important that North Star ends up being if you stay at it for 10 years. You, you start in 2012, got your, got your warehouse and dog patch, delivering product. When did you raise capital? So we raised capital right off the bat. I think we raised $250,000 and I took you know, $100,000 of my TPG bonus and put it into the company and found you know, a couple of other people who had met me through the TPG days to put in. I was so proud of the 250,000. I feel like by today's standards of 250,000 is not a lot. But at the time I was like over the moon. We struggled to raise capital for the first four years. I mean, we weren't profitable. We were buying the product off Amazon and we were selling it. And I mean, I would raise, you know, $5,000, 200 to $2,500. It was awful. And we finally, in 2016, so four years later, and, I mean, you can imagine the stress that right? I'd given up a good corporate job four years ago. And I'm like, on this startup four years in, not a lot of traction. It's like question of questionable judgment. But we went out to raise our Series A and I had to pitch 176 firms. Wow. Um, and all of them said no. And we had our first down quarter ever in Q2 2016 because we didn't have any money to like, for marketing. I mean, most of our marketing at that time was through, through influencers, but we couldn't like really afford to do anything. What was the scale of the business at that time? We were doing about a million a month, a million a quarter. 
about a million, a million a quarter. quarter. Okay. It's like a 4 yeah. million kind of run rate. Yeah. I think we did like a million three and million yeah. two in the second quarter. Yeah. Um, down from like a million three and a million four in the first quarter. And it was getting dicey, but our, our customer data was really good. Our customer loyalty was good. People genuinely love the brand, love what we stood for. And so I remember I was like, we were like, it's getting tight, right? I've got a, more than a couple of paychecks out of my sort of personal bank account to keep the lights on. And I, I should give credit to a couple of folks here. The first are a group called Nextview Ventures out of Boston. And those guys were in as a seed investor, a relatively small investor. And they funded a couple of bridges without which no chance we make it. And then when it was really dicey, I called the guy Paul Martino at Bullpen Capital and he said, Paul, I know you were close. There's got to be a price at which you do this deal. Like there's got to be a price. And Paul, to his credit, said, you don't want to have that conversation with me. But we ended up having the conversation and he was fair. He was very fair about it. And so, you know, we did the deal. I think it was like a 11.7 pre or something like that. Um, so it was a relatively low price, but it was very fair. Anyway, that round allowed us to sort of get the company rolling. And that year we ended up doing about 6 million. The next year we did 32. The next year we did 104. So, you know, from there, the train really got on the tracks. And during this entire period, was the 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 company name, the brand name, was that already set? I'm no. just kind of, no, okay. <laughs> did you, Robin, did you know that? Or you, was no, no, set no, up no, that I'm question? actually curious. I, I, oh, I yeah. love this part, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, former finance guy, don't don't trust me to name a company. The uh, the first name of the company, get anxiety every time I say this word, uh, was ePantry, E-P-A-N-T-R-Y. Memorable. I, I bet if you go to ePantry.com, it's still redirected. Uh, <laughs> uh, try that. Yes. Uh, but that was the first name. Because remember, I believed it was going to be a, a convenience value proposition. And so we started building our own brand of products in, I think, 2014, 2015. And we called it Grove Collaborative because... A grove, grove has like a nice environmental tone, but really a grove cannot be one tree, right? Definitionally, it's a group of trees. And our problem of sustainability is not one that any one individual can solve. Definitionally, it's one that we need to solve together, right? Me and you buying aluminum rather than plastic is a modest impact. But if we all do that, I'm talking about aluminum versus plastic bottles, right? If we all do that, I mean, we will save hundreds of millions of pounds of plastic, truly billions. Right, we'll have real impact on climate because, for those who don't know, plastic is made is a petrochemical sort of output. Right, so real impact on climate, real impact on ocean health. I mean, all of these awesome things, but only if we do it together. So anyway, that was why we chose the name Grove. And then in 2016, on March 8th, remember the date vividly. Uh, there were about eight of us standing in a circle in headquarters. We cut the new website live uh, to Grove.co. We could not afford Grove.com at the time, so we had Grove.co. Um, but I remember that day vividly. Thank God we did that. You know, and you mentioned scaling from six to thirty-two to one hundred and four. With that round with bullpen cap, like what what changed at that point? Like what did you do with the capital? How did you change the growth trajectory of Grove? The first was that we we got a really good understanding of why, which is actually fairly simple. We at the time were selling mostly third-party products. But we could use the data from our third-party products to build best-in-class first-party products under the Grove brand. And that was a big unlock because our data was incredible. And our cost of failure, it's not like if you launch a product at Target and it fails, then you're in a bad meeting with the buyer and she's talking to you about, hey, are you going to get your self-based back next year? That's a bad situation to be in. 
if you launch a product on DTC to 10,000 customers and it fails, you know, worst case, you give them a refund or a discount on the next version, right? It's very simple. So we could launch really quickly. So as we scaled, we launched more products from our first party brand. And this had the result of with every cohort we acquired, we had higher lifetime brands because our own brands would be stickier, they'd be higher margin, and they'd be more differentiated. And so basically, we got into this incredible virtuous flywheel where we'd spend, you know, in 2016, we spent like $6 on CAC and our, you know, whatever, five-year LTV was like 25 And then in 2018, we'd spend $15, but our five-year LTV would be like 55 or 60 right. Actually, at that time, we were getting like insane returns on CAC, probably like 100, right? 7x return on CAC. But we'd keep growing our LTV much more quickly than our CAC as we scale. And that allowed us to be in this incredibly self-reinforcing, where not just every cohort was better retaining, but they were higher margin, they were more strategic, and we were improving our product revenue. It's sort of every single thing. So that was part of the unlock. The other part was we really figured out early the value of community content creation. And so we had a network of hundreds of influencers, and this is before like big influencers, who are creating content for us, basically for free, and we would pay them if their content hit. And so we had content creators making millions of dollars from us, and the content creators making you know a few hundred dollars. But we had this network of hundreds of people who were creating content, and that allowed us to put out consistently engaging marketing on sort of like every social media platform. And that combination of repeatable growth and lifetime value coupled with a really great way to get products in front of consumers by de-risking the creative process, right? I mean, you all have been a part of a creative campaign that totally whiffed. You know, we had like a hundred lined up a quarter. It was incredible. Right. Um, that combination allowed us to grow really, really quick. And, you know, we were growing our gross margins by like a thousand basis points a year at the same time. How much variability did you find in the baskets? You know, did you have clear hero skews that emerged over time, or was there a lot of a lot of difference between one person's basket to the next? Hero categories, not hero skews. Okay. You know, we really came to understand that home care is a trip driver, right? So home care, dish soap, laundry detergent, paper towels, stuff like that. I mean, not rocket science. But what we found over time was that in a given year, a consumer will try 40 unique SKUs through growth. Incredible, right? They came in, they trusted growth, and they would try an incredible variety of stuff. And so you might come back for your bath issue or your tree-free paper towel, but you'll be curious and you'll try a kitchen towel or a seasonal candle or whatever it is. And so we created this, this really wonderful hybrid of high frequency, they're like fast moving products and accessories to surround it. And over time have moved from sort of home to home and personal care. And our next big sort of frontier is wellness. We think that's a big opportunity. We hear a lot from our consumers on that. So we're continuing to move sort of across categories in our digital business. And we can often now use the same playbook of lead with third party brands and be great partners to them, understand what consumers want there. And then figure out what's missing in the marketplace and build that with our own brands. So how much did the mix change over time between Grove brand versus third-party brands? So when we started out, it was 0% Grove brand. 
But today it's probably between 50 and 60% of GMV is our first party brand. So the majority and increasing every quarter. And out of curiosity, because obviously so you started the business over over 10 years ago, right? Don't remind me. I was much more <laughs> hair back then. And and the paradigm has obviously changed a bit. You know, the environment has changed. I'm just curious, this idea of D2C only kind of learning through third-party brands, I'm part, partially asking for entrepreneurs who are listening, sort of, does that playbook, if you were actually going to run that in today's environment, is that what you would advise people to do? Or do you feel like you got to do something entirely different today? So I would definitely not advise people to follow our same playbook, right? We were lucky to be at a point in time where media was really cheap. Competition was less than it is today. And we were able to get to scale. You know, if we had less than probably 200 million of direct consumer revenue, the unit economics would just not work. Right. And we have, you know, something like a $60 average basket. If we didn't have a $60 average basket with the public, you can look at our gross margin, roughly 50% gross margin, the economics just don't work. And so we can only have those economics because of our scale. And we were only able to get to scale so quickly because we were relatively early in the adoption curves. And I actually think when you look at our business today, you know, our fastest growing channel is offline, Target, Walmart, CVS, you know, Meyer, a bunch of other places. That's our fastest growing channel. And it's because you know, we've gotten billions and billions of impressions digital. We've only had a few million people buy. So there's a lot of pent up demand. And so I actually think that Omnichannel is probably the best CPG business model. We still really do benefit from the ability to leverage consumer data to test and learn and launch really quickly. That's still a benefit, but I don't believe it's feasible to build the same sort of business model that we had today. Because I remember I was talking about $6 CACs in 2012. Like, yep. I don't know anybody who's seeing those today, right? <laughs> it's like, it's been a, been a long time since we Got saw it. a single digit CAC on Facebook. So I think there's lots of opportunities, but I actually think for CPG companies in particular, the digital route is, is much harder. And what's really required to win now is a, you know, a high, a bigger basket, fuller regimen. You know, there's a bunch of rules that didn't apply when we, when we got started. So I think it's a pretty challenging time to be a subscale, a subscale player in, in DTC, you know, living with CPG margins, right? If you've got hundred percent margin on software, it's a different game. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Grove Collaborative founder and CEO, Stu Landisberg. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on all of our past episodes at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our LinkedIn page for news and updates and iTunes reviews help people discover us. Thank you in advance. But now let's get back to our conversation with Grove Collaborative founder and CEO, Stu Landisberg. When did you decide to go, go offline and, and what was the discussion around when and how? So we decided before the pandemic to go omnichannel. And then the pandemic hit and we were like, all right, we better double down on the online business, which was you know a good decision at the time, but but delayed I what I think would have been a good launch, uh, you know, a year earlier. And the decision was really about: Do we have a product that we think is the best in the world? And for a long time, we built with the privilege of consumers who already knew and trusted growth. 
They knew we had the best customer service. They knew if they got a product and they didn't like it, they could switch it out easily. They knew that everything they'd ever gotten from Grove, you know, we spend so much time on curation and making sure that every product you get from Grove reinforces the idea that buying from Grove is good, right? That we, we do a good job curation. And so it's a real privilege to market to that audience. But when you go out and you're sitting on the shelf next to the biggest brands in the world, you need to be really confident that your product isn't just better, but it's 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 the best in the world and what it does. And it doesn't have to be the best in the world for every single consumer, but for your group of consumers, it has to be big enough. It needs to be the best in the world. And we really got that conviction in, I think, in and around 2020. And at that point, we were like, all right, now we're ready to take it out. Because you know, at the time, the writing wasn't quite on the wall for DTC the way it is now from a unit economic perspective. But our vision has always been that consumer products can be a positive force for human and environmental health. And so from a sort of micro perspective, to have the impact we want to have on the industry, we needed to be in third-party retail. And it was very gratifying to me to see like big brands coming out with concentrates and some of those formats work, some of them have. Right? We have the benefit of having tested and learned for a decade on on platform. But it's exciting for me to see people copying us and trying. You mentioned that you have more hero categories than hero SKUs. By not having the unlimited shelf space dynamic of D2C, how did you choose what to launch with? And what did you learn in that process? So we chose the product where we thought we were most differentiated. And, you know, candidly, we asked our consumers. We chose to launch at Target. 60% of our consumers shop at Target. We set up, you know, focus groups and Facebook groups and surveys and calls to really understand what our community said they would want to see at Target. And from that, we got a good, a good idea of, hey, these are the SKUs that people are going to want to shop, are going to want to buy. And it gave us a pretty good roadmap. And we're kind of in year three of following that roadmap that our consumers gave us. And if I'm being intellectually honest, we would have picked it almost the same, right? Just sort of like using intuition and internal data, but probably not quite, right? We probably wouldn't have gotten some of the insights around colorways and fragrance ways and some of the like, if our spray bottle, you can, it has a really unique system where you can change it to five different labels. You can like move the silicone base around so it doesn't slip, but also um, it can be like glass, shower, multi-purpose, tub and tile or floor all in the same bottle and it can be labeled. So if you like want three white spray bottles, each of them can have a clear label on it. So stuff like that is a direct output of customer data and help us understand what to, to put on shelf. And you know, not wildly dissimilar from the early days, where you just like listen to the customer in Starbucks and do the thing. That was sort of our approach to building our, our retail category roadmap. And then you're in, you get data sort of back from the retailers too. But but that was how we got started. Makes sense. We haven't had, I, I think you might be the first entrepreneur that's been on the show that's gone through a de-spacking. Yeah. Could you share a bit more about, you know, what what built up to the desire to do that? and how you made a decision and, and how it all works. Totally. So it's interesting. I'm the first entrepreneur who's ever been through a D-Spec. Well, see if I'm the last. Uh, it totally could be uh, the, way, the way those things have gone. Um, but Grove has always, it's always been my aspiration to take the company public. We've had the opportunity for sort of large scale partnerships a number of times through the years. But from an impact perspective, it, it's always been sort of an obvious decision to take the company public. So when we were looking at a regular way IPO, or going the DSPAC route, you know, we're collaborative is the second word. Right? If you want to go far, go together. 
And so we looked for and basically said, hey, if we can bring in a super value-added partner through the DSTAC process, that's worth it. And candidly, the process took you know about a year longer than I think my board and I expected, which was a real negative. Can you explain sort of the thought process between the benefits of as you thought about a direct IPO versus a despacking, you know, like what were some of the pros and cons that you and the board were thinking about? Yeah. So I think, you know, the pros of a traditional IPO are you, know, you don't give up the dilution to the SPAC. You usually sort of are built for a really nice first day pop because a bunch of the sort of like dynamics around how it gets priced. And in retrospect, it would have been much faster. That was actually, it was originally built the SPAC was faster. It didn't end up being that way. And probably in a traditional IPO, you get better price discovery. You could argue one way or the other, depending on bull or bear market, but there's potentially better price discovery in a traditional IPO. But we chose to go the DSPAC route because I was the, the thinking was if we can bring in a really high quality partner like we were able to do with Richard Branson, you know, that can be trajectory changing for the company. Right. If we have if we believe we have the right mission and the best products in the world. Awareness, right? That's the thing that matters. And, you know, it's sort of like, I'm sure many of your listeners watch Shark Tank, right? You bring in someone like that because they can help grow awareness of your company. And that awareness has real value. And so, you know, in the case of Virgin, that's been a terrific partnership. We now have a great partnership with Drew Barrymore, which came as a result, for example, of Drew's relationship with Richard and Virgin. So that's been a super successful partnership for us. Um, the other downside in the SPAC is that the way the pricing works is you have less capital certainty than you have in an IPO because you can't sort of like adjust the price at the last second the way you can with a traditional IPO. Um, so there's a little more dilution in the SPAC. Theoretically, it should be faster, but in my experience, it was much longer. And what what made it longer? There's just like more pieces to put in place, right? So the the way the process works. You know, the, you've got to find a partner, then you've got to do the pricing dance, then you go out to market and raise a pipe, which sort of like a second fundraise. Then after you have the pipe, you sort of have this period between sort of announcing the deal is going and when you actually de-spack, which is another sort of four or five months of process. And the other thing that happened in between is the SEC, a lot of SPACs weren't rigorous in their projections. And as a result, were, I think, misleading to investors. You know, we, I think, have, I don't know if you've been watching our last couple of earnings releases, but I'm very pleased with our results. I'll put it that way. But there were a lot of companies that were sort of like doing zero revenue saying, hey, we'll do 200 million in two years. That didn't materialize. So the SEC cracked down and it meant that the whole process really sort of slowed down a lot, which I think is a good thing for investors at large, supportive of good SEC oversight. Uh, but it meant that our process was slower. So tell us about the moment of going going public and what did that feel like? I didn't start this company saying, hey, I want to make a lot of money, right? And the people who work at Grove, they're not, they're not here for the money. They're here to change the world. That is like why you work at Grove. You want to get paid a fair, fair salary and you want to work in the big leagues to change the world. And so what that moment really was about us for our company wasn't sort of like, oh my God, all of our stock options are liquid. It was a validation of the scale that we had achieved in our mission. And so when I was sort of giving the like speech to the company before we went up there to ring the bell, there's a quote on the wall in our office that I love. It's a Margaret Mead quote, which is never doubt that a small group of well-intentioned citizens can change the world. 
indeed, it is the only thing that ever had. Right. And that's us. That is us. We're a small group of well-intentioned citizens and we have changed our industry. I like believe a hundred percent our industry will move towards concentration. It will move away from plastic and Grove was the catalyst. We did that. It wasn't about the like money. It was about like, this is what we did and we've reached this scale and that is worth celebrating. I think the whole day and the whole experience is really special and our stock's been volatile, but the taste in my mouth is not one of like, oh my gosh, stock volatility is a pain. It's what a privilege to get to work on this mission with all of these incredibly smart people. And win, lose, or draw, no one can take away the impact that we've had in our category, which will last forever. What's it been like? Share more about what's, what it's been like to be a public company CEO. My experience of it is that it's not that different than being a private company CEO with a demanding board. It's a little bit of a different set of stakeholders, but we're very used to reporting out to investors and holding ourselves to a high standard. We have a different, another tool from a compensation perspective in RSUs. It's interesting how the public, how public company shareholders versus private think about dilution. But overall, you know, the thing that matters now is the thing that always matters. How do you build a better product for the customer? I don't, I don't feel like it's been wildly, it's been wildly different. I also think. You know, I spent a fair amount of time on the investing side before this. So, you know, happiness is the delta between expectations and reality. And I, I sort of knew what I was getting into. What have been some of the learnings in terms of, okay, so you go through a despacking and you have certain certain expectations that are set to the marketplace. What are the public markets like versus being able to stay under the radar screen of a private company? And like, how do you manage those dynamics? So the public markets are not rational in the short term. You know, that's just the truth. You know, we had a couple of shareholders who sold the stock for reasons that had nothing to do with the company's performance. And stock goes up because of supply and demand, right? Like if somebody's selling the stock, there's too much supply, price is going to go down. That's just the way it is. It has nothing to do with the company's performance. And so I think one of the big learnings for me is how valuable it is to just really communicate that upfront to people who don't have the experience. And then to be sort of personally lead by example, you know, I can't control what the stock did today. I can't control what it does tomorrow, but I can control what it does in two or three years. You're right. We raised a lot of private capital. You're always forward looking there. But in some ways, as a private company, you know, you're looking at your next board meeting, you're looking at as a public company, it's so obviously random what the stock does in a day that the only option is to truly think long-term about what's best for the business. That's the only option because it's the only thing that can guarantee your, your business stock performs well in the long term. So in a strange way, you know, people say, hey, you go public, you manage the business quarter to quarter. My experience has been just the opposite, which is you know, we'll have good quarters, we'll have bad quarters. But as long as we have the right long-term goals and stay aggressive in, in pursuing them, you know, that's where we really have control. And what's your vision for for where this business is five years from now? I think, so the company's vision statement, consumer products can be a positive force for human and environmental health. How that plays out for our roadmap over the next five years is really, I think, threefold. The first is we're going to continue to push into omni-channel. Our products are performing really well at retail. We have a lot more products that are retail ready than ever before. And so I think you'll see growth products pop up in a lot more places, which will, I think, put pressure on the competition to catch up on plastic. And I think it'll help grow our business, both on the awareness side and on the revenue side. 
right? That's a good business model for us. We like that business. The second piece is on the direct consumer side. I think we'll explore new categories. Health and wellness, I mentioned, hasn't been a big channel for us, but it's a huge market and one that's never really had a clear sustainability leader. And so we think human and environmental health, we think that combination can be really compelling in the category. We have some data that suggests we're well-equipped to win there. So I think you know we're not just going to play in more channels, but we're also going to play in more categories. And then the third piece, and you know this is from a business perspective, not as much from a vision perspective, we're going to operate with a ruthless level of efficiency that we didn't before. It was very easy when private to disguise or sweep away excess costs, right? Especially excess opex. When you're looking at big growth, you know you put up 10 million of extra opex. You know, it's easy to say, hey, we'll just grow 50% and who cares about that? We weren't as disciplined as we should have been for a long time. So we'll continue to be really aggressive when it comes to our margins at the gross margin level and at the EBITDA margin level. And I think that'll help our company operate candidly, you know, better and more efficient because it'll keep us focused on the most important things. So from a vision perspective, I think there's opportunity to build a brand that can be a real sustainability leader in both fighting against plastic in the home care category and in taking the things that made us successful there and picking a second or third category and building up second and third pillars of where that brand can really be strong. And so that's where I think we'll be in in five years. Wayne, I really love how creative Stu got when he was talking about that story of camping out at a Starbucks to actually get people to tell him whether or not his idea was a good one. And, you know, I would take a five or $10 Starbucks card and uh, opine. I'm Heck totally yeah, I'm, in. I'm, I'd be in on that too. I guess that's why I'm always the guy that ends up with a big pile of Girl Scout cookies because I, I have the <laughs> inability to say no to being solicited at a, at a Starbucks. But I think that's that hustle that really helped this business get to where it is today from pretty humble beginnings for the first four years of really trying to find its way until he landed that series a and at that point in time you know he had really great product market fit a lot of folks who were excited about his business you know obviously you know with that comes a lot of responsibility to scale as well and I think Stu did a really great job and just kind of knocked it out of the park. And that really set him up for that next milestone. And a very unique one. I mean, they were probably one of the last consumer businesses to de-SPAC. And you know, you talk about pressure of, of the VC era, as you described, but the pressures of being a public company are another level of running a quarter to quarter business, but with a long-term view. And so, but at the same time, it's really amazing to see how Stu's able to think about the balance in his life. And we're going to learn a lot more about that in this rapid fire game to come. It's game time, Stu. You Let's know, play. This whole, this whole show's been building up to this moment. You ready? Game on. All right, here we go. All right. Sweet potato or regular French fries? Regular. Aisle or window seat? Always window. Running or walking? Running. Work from home or office? Work from work. (laughs) (laughs) Beach or mountains? Mountains. Love winning or hate losing? Gotta be both. Pancakes or waffles? Mitch Hedberg, my favorite comedian, once said, 
that waffles are like pancakes with little traps for syrup. And I think that's a great insight. <laughs> I agree. Netflix or Hulu? Netflix. Passenger driver? Driver. Night or morning? Morning. Hot coffee, iced coffee? Hot coffee. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. So much to learn. It's incredible. Concert or sports game? Concert. Night at the aquarium or the Met? The Met. Instagram or Twitter? Neither. Watch sports or play sports? Play sports. Board games or video games? Board games. What movie could you watch a hundred times and still love it? Goodwill Hunting. Oh yeah, good one. Ooh. Maybe what Ready game? Player One. Like both yeah. them a lot. What game, card game, board game, etc., would you bring with you uh, to a deserted island? If I'm not by myself, I might bring Settlers of Catan. Oh, nice. What's the last great book you read? Uh, the last great book. I've read a lot. Probably the most impactful book I've read in the last year was uh, Letters from a Stoic, the Seneca sort of like letters collection. It's incredible. <laughs> Last question for you, Stu. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? So my number one piece of advice is work on a, a project and a problem that has real meaning, right? For me, it's sustainability. I think the world is going through numerous sort of like existential species level environmental crises. And it is, it is probably my greatest joy outside of my family to get to spend my time working on that problem. And I've been doing this for 11 years. And I think by most conventional definitions would be have been considered a pretty good run. But a lot of the time of that 11 years, right? It was four years, like 40% of the time, probably four and a half years, was pre-series A. It's terrible. And it only, I only made it through. It was only worth it because I really believed. And so for any aspiring entrepreneurs who are like, I have a way of making money versus I have a way of making the world better and maybe it'll make money. Always choose the way, in my experience, of making the world better because A, we need it. B, my experience has been it's, it's led to a much more fulfilling life than chasing a financially driven business model. And C, I think people who pursue their genuine passions are, are more likely to succeed. That's great advice, Stu. Well, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. A privilege. Thank you, my friends. Thanks. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back next time with the mystery guest. Who will it be? You won't want to miss our conversation coming up next time on Unfinished Biz. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.